fun fact. According to scholars, one in four cowboys working in America during the golden age of westward expansion were black. Many others were Mexican or a part of indigenous groups, which means Hollywood has been lying to us, y'all. Cowboys were far more diverse than what we've seen Hollywood show us, right? In movies and films and stuff. However, some historians actually believe this one in four estimation is a lie as well. They believe there are probably even more cowboys because this one in four number came from a census that was done like in the 1800s during the time of slavery. And it is believed that before the census people arrived on these plantations, enslavers, the colonizers would hide a lot of the people they enslaved, especially cowboys who could run off into the woods on horses and shit. And these enslavers did that because the less black folks they owned, I put that in quotes, the less black folks the census could count. And that means that they wouldn't have to pay as much in taxes because enslavers were taxed on their property. And believe it or not, black folks were considered property. So a lot of times before these census people arrived and counted people, black people, or counted their property, that's how it was really seen, a lot of the enslavers would hide their black people, aka their property at the time, so they wouldn't have to pay that much in taxes. So a lot of historians believe this one in four estimation is wrong, and it probably was more like two in four or three in four, because they believed a lot of enslavers hid up to 40 black people in particular. So there you go. A fun fact with another fact on top of a fact. (laughs) Okay. So I don't know about y'all, but black cowboys were not seen in the old Western movies that I was watching with my grandpa. And they definitely weren't in our textbooks, not on any page. Okay. Um, And like I said, my grandpa, he loved Western y'all. And now that we know this information, are we surprised that Hollywood made cowboys mostly white? Nah, but what we will find out in today's episode is that the stereotype of this heroic white cowboy is far from true. The Wild West was more diverse than popular Hollywood films, and some of those white cowboy films were actually based on the true story of black cowboys. Yep, you heard me right. I am mind blown too, okay? Look, y'all, the white American cowboy is low-key a myth, that supports historical erasure of black cowboys. So yeah, today's summer series episode is all about black cowboys who are left out of Hollywood and our textbooks. This episode will answer some questions like what and how did black folks become cowboys, especially after the Civil War and the end of slavery. We'll also answer what were the significant contributions and achievements of black cowboys and cowgirls in shaping American Western culture. And then, of course, I'm going to give you some black cowboys and girls that you should know. What's the real story behind black cowboys in American history? So keep listening. Welcome back to That Wasn't In My Textbook, our bi-weekly podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, your historian who has a BA in African-American studies from Wesleyan University and has been doing this for 
six odd some years, maybe a little bit more. And today you're listening to Season 5, Episode 3 on the Hidden History of Cowboys. Now, I said Season 5, Episode 3, because this is a part of our summer series. I know people might think that summer is over, but it ain't. And that's why today is the third episode out of four of our summer series where we explore lit historical topics that are perfect for the sunny, beachy vibes of summer. So far, we've covered history of oysters and the history of surfing. And today we're going to talk about cowboys and particularly black cowboys. I don't know about y'all, but when I think about a person riding a horse, a cowboy or a cowgirl or just someone straight up riding a horse... I usually envision it being like hot, right, and summertime and like dusty, you know. Now, do cowboys and people ride horses in the winter? Absolutely, yes. But that's not the point here, okay, you little smartass? We're talking about cowboys, and it made me think of summer, and that's why we're doing it. (laughs) And like I said before, summer ain't over. In fact, I Googled it, when summer ends. And when autumn starts and it starts at the September equinox. Don't ask me what an equinox is. Okay. But it happens every year between September 21st and 24th. And so that's when the transition happens. So September 21st ish is when summer ends. Okay. And we're not quite there yet. So all you pumpkin spice and Halloween fiends need to relax and hold off. I've seen y'all on social talking about pumpkin spice. All right. Cut that shit out. At least until September 21st. At least until the midway point, okay? And I know you're excited. I'm excited too. I like Halloween, but it's not there yet. So let me do my summer series. Now, you might be wondering how I got onto the topic of history of black cowboys. And some of you could care less. (laughs) But either way, I'm going to tell you, I grew up on black and white cowboy movies and soap operas, okay? My grandpa loved watching cowboy movies, and when I was young, I would just be sitting next to him watching people ride through the West, having gunfights, pew, 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 um, shooting up banks and all of that. Now, should I have been watching that at that young age? Uh, Probably not. But then we wouldn't have this episode, now would we? (laughs) So my childhood inspired this episode along with all the wonderful black cowboy history and modern day black cowboy and cowgirl groups that were highlighted during the pandemic. During the pandemic, during the racial uprise, the Black Lives Matter movement, we started to see people talk about black cowboys and cowgirls. So that inspired this, along with just some of the cool cowboy films that have gone out, like in particularly the Netflix film with fine-ass Ildris called The Harder They Fall, right? So those three things, the cowboy and cowgirl movies that I watched when I was young with my grandpa on top of the cowboy and cowgirl coverage that was happening during the pandemic, like the Compton Cowboys, plus, you know, new films like The Harder They Fall that highlight black cowboys, it all inspired this. That's how we got this wonderful episode today. In today's episode, we are joined by a very special guest, Zarin Burnett, who is a person of many titles, including historian, writer, journalist, and podcaster as well. He has a podcast called Black Cowboys, which y'all should check out. I listen to every episode that brought to life the largely unknown Black West. 
And I appreciate him for that. I learned so much listening to it. So Zarin is here to school us on a few things today. As usual, before we jump into the interview with Zarin, where he schools us, right, on Black Cowboys, Black Black Cowgirls, I will do my five to 10 minute history segment, giving you all the facts and receipts on everything Cowboys. And then you'll hear the interview with Saren, who will take us into the Cowboys and Cowgirls of the past. And he'll tell us about the current state of Black Cowboys and Cowgirls, because history is not only what's happening in the past. No, no, no. It's what's happening this very second. Let's jump into the history segment. Before we hit the trail, let's start with a little definition because we love kicking things off with a definition. When you look up cowboy, you'll find that it's a noun. It's someone who takes care of cattle or horses, often while riding one, a trusty horse. But I reckon our guest, Zarin Burnett III, has a way of breaking down this definition that is just pure gold. So let's roll that clip from our interview because his definition is a lot better than the one I found. How would you define a black cowboy or a cowboy if you think they're different or similar? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. How are black cowboys different than cowboys? The it comes down to the terminology. Uh, there are a lot of different terms for the people we think of as cowboys. In the West, or west of the Mississippi, they are often called buckaroos, which was an anglicization of the Spanish for vaquero. So you have somebody who was a, literally a cowman out in the West, and that becomes buckaroo. In the East Coast, you have uh, two different traditions, one in Texas and then one in South Carolina. And they basically merge, if you will, in the Southern imagination where you have black cowboys in South Carolina and you have black cowboys in Texas. And Texas is where we get the term cowboy, although the first actual usage in, in text comes from South Carolina. It's in a newspaper and they say cowboy, referring to black cow handlers, if you will. Like the, what in the West Coast in Texas, they would call ranch hands. So if you were a white person dealing with cows in Texas, you were called a ranch hand or a cow hand or just a hand. And if you were... A black person and you were dealing, or black specifically, specifically a black man, and you were dealing with the, the cattle, you were called a cowboy because all black men in Texas were referred to as boys. They would say, oh, boy, go get this. Boy, do that. So you were the cowboy, right? And then there would be somebody else who was another type of boy. That language, the cowboy, solidified and it became such a known tradition that that's what people in Texas referred to somebody who was handling cattle. So everybody became known as cowboys and it extended past the racial uh, implications so that way, ranch hands were soon known as cowboys. And then that lasted for a long time. But what we think of as cowboys doesn't really come along until basically the 20th century when you start making movies and TV shows. And then they start depicting it. And then that's where the language is really codified in a way that Americans think of all of them as cowboys. Whereas if you were going to have accurate stories, you would have heard, you know, and you did in the, in the third in movies in the 1930s, they would have buckaroos. Like uh, Herb Jeffries, a black cowboy, was known as the bronze buckaroo. So you have this tradition already there. But by the 40s and the war years in America wins World War II, all of a sudden now we have to give ourselves this mythos, this idea of who we are and who we've been. And we don't have knights. We don't have an ancient tradition to draw upon to talk about who our warriors are. So we identify with the cowboy. Then you have the Western come along. And there's a lot of Westerns, obviously, in the 40s and 50s. But with the advent of television at the end of the 40s, all of a sudden, all these Westerns start being shown as reruns on TV. People get to know the West through reruns of Westerns on TV. 
solidifies the imagination and that's where we get the idea of cowboy and if you notice in those westerns there were no black people for the most part so there were no black cowboys in the popular imagination even though the cowboy began with black people on horseback now when most of us think of a cowboy we tend to think of a slick talking wheat chewing sharp shooting draw white fella with a midwest country twang in the u.s Nine times out of 10, you probably grew up seeing at least one Western or TV film with this kind of archetype. But the term cowboy, as Aaron pointed out in his bomb-ass definition, was what black cattle ranchers, usually enslaved black men, were called. So how did black folks become cowboys before and after slavery? Way, way, way back when, in the olden days, like the 1600s and the 1800s, black folks were some of the first cowboys here in America. Black folks and Mexicans. How, may you ask? Now, during the transatlantic slave trade, when colonizers were kidnapping Africans, they particularly were taking black folks from West Africa, like Senegal, because these folks knew how to handle cattle and cows like nobody's business. That's what they were doing in West Africa. So the colonizers came over to West Africa and were like, hmm, those are the people we want to kidnap and bring into slavery and they can work cattle in America. I know, kind of fucked up, right? But that's literally what happened. The West Africans with their cattle skills were taken to places like South Carolina, but they were also taken to Spanish American colonies from Mexico to Argentina for their cattle handling skills. And like I said before, right, Mexicans were also handling cattle because they were already in Mexico and what is today Texas and parts of California, right? That was all Mexico. There was cattle there and a lot of Mexicans were also handling cattle. And so with the importation of well, really the, I'm not going to say importation, that's horrible, with the transatlantic slave trade of kidnapping West Africans and bringing them to America, plus the Mexicans who were already here, the indigenous folks who were already here handling cow. That's how we got this large kind of cowboy creation. As the years went by, the cattle business moved all around the South. And by the 1850s, it had made its way to the heart of cattle country, which was Texas. Now, Texas was big. I mean, it still is, right? But back, it was a big deal for cattle. And guess what? About one third of the folks that were living there were enslaved. Now, the cowboy way of life truly came into its own in Texas. Texas had been a cattle country since it was colonized by Spain back in the 1500s, but it wasn't until the late 1800s with millions of cattle grazing in Texas that the cattle business became the big deal that we know it to be today. Before the 1850s, Texas was a bit of a wild west itself, and it attracted white folks looking for cheap land. These white folks were 
also kind of like dipping off and sneaking into Texas because they didn't want to pay Uncle Sam, right, the tax man. And they were also trying to avoid paying their debts. So they began moving into Texas, a.k.a. Mexico, kind of gentrifying Mexico, which was during the first half of the 19th century. Though the Mexican government opposed slavery, the white enslavers didn't give two shits, and they still brought slaves with them as they settled the frontier and established cotton farms and cattle ranches. That's how cowboys and cattle life became such a big deal in Texas. By 1825, nearly 25% of the settler population in Texas was made up of enslaved Africans, By 1860, that number had grown to over 30%, with the census reporting that over 182,000 enslaved individuals lived in Texas. By then, white Texans had various roles in the cattle industry, from dealers to horse catchers. But it was pretty darn likely that black African slaves were doing the work connected to the cattle industry, um, forced to help their masters with their cattle on their ranches. It is also believed that a lot of black cowboys learned their skills from vaqueros, I think that's how they say it, which is also the Mexican cowboy, because remember, Texas was really Mexico, and already in those territories, Mexicans were living and handling cattle. So there you have it. So when we hit the 1850s, boom, most of the cowboys in Texas were black, just like most of the population in Texas was black. These cowboys didn't have it like they do in those Hollywood movies, okay? Because remember, this is during the time of slavery. So black cowboys during slavery were wrangling wild cowboys, especially in places like the Gulf Coast with lots of thick bushes and rambles. It wasn't like, you know, the the Hollywood life of gunfights and stuff like that. It was more just like handling cattle in the 1850s. Black cowboys often had more than one duty. For example, a black cowboy working, well, a black cowboy who was enslaved would be forced to cook on the trail and then he would also have to hunt deer and chase down wild turkeys and sometimes even sing and dance and entertain and in addition you know some of these black cowboys would take on roles as nurses and bodyguards and even money carriers for their white enslavers their white owners Now, one thing you should know is that these cowboys were doing all this, like moving cattle from state to state and hunting and all this other stuff before bob wire was even invented. So they were rounding up cattle and moving them from one plantation to another and even across state lines with just like dogs and horses. And here's an interesting tidbit. Because these cowboys were black and enslaved and considered property themselves, their enslavers didn't trust them with like whips and weapons to keep the animals in line. The enslavers were afraid that these black cowboys who were enslaved 
would potentially use the weapons against them. So black cowboys had to be really creative and really skilled in keeping cattle in line and making sure that they didn't graze outside of certain parameters. And so they used a lasso instead, a rope. You know, you see that rope. So they did a lot of roping skills and a lot of like different creative tactics to help guide cattle, help keep them in check. And so that just speaks to how innovative black folks are. Okay. Then the Civil War began to happen, and that's when we see a shift in what a black cowboy is. While Texas ranchers, a.k.a. a lot of these plantation owners, they had to go and fight in the Civil War. And during their fighting, they relied on the people they enslaved to keep their land and cattle in check. And these slaves learned the skills of cattle herding and tending, like breaking horses, rescuing calves from the mud, and freeing longhorns stuck in the bush. They really got to like hone those skills right during the Civil War. And they also probably knew those skills before then. Little did they know that these skills later on down the line would make them invaluable to the Texas cattle industry after the war. So once the war ended and white folks came back to their land and plantations, you know, black people, a lot of black people did know they were free. And so their cattle population was all over the place um, and they just needed help rounding them up. And normally if they needed help, these white ranchers, right, these white enslavers, if they needed help, they would just use the people they enslaved for free. But now after the war, slavery is over and these enslaved people are no longer in bondage. They now had to hire and pay newly freed black folks. The end of the war, which led to the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of slavery, marked the beginning of a new era for black cowboys and black cowgirls, filled with new opportunities to make money. Right after the Civil War, being a cowboy was one of the few jobs open to black men and black women that was very, very lucrative and high in demand. And they didn't have to work as sharecroppers or elevator operators or delivery boys. They didn't have to do these service jobs. Like a black cowboy or girl was more entrepreneurial and better paying. So that was a win. Freed black folks skilled in herding cattle found themselves in even greater demand as ranchers began selling their cattle up north because beef was worth nearly 10 times more in the north than it was in Texas because there was just beef everywhere. But here's the thing. Texas didn't have many railroads back then, so they had to physically move these huge hurdles of cattle from Texas to places like Kansas to places like Colorado and even Missouri. And so that's when a lot of black cowboys would be hired by the enslavers to move their cattle to help them sell it up north. And the black cowboys would then take the cattle up north for the white rancher and they would get paid this time, right? Because it's after the emancipation. Now, in the wild, wild west, cowboys, both black and white, rode the open trails, facing tough conditions, snow and stuff like that. Um, Sometimes they would even be attacked by indigenous folks who were defending their lands, which makes sense, right? 
But in the towns they passed through, black cowboys did face discrimination. They couldn't eat in certain restaurants and stay in certain hotels. But within the crew, the crew of people that were working together to move cattle or do whatever it is that they're doing as black cowboys and black cowgirls, they found respect and a level of equality that other black folks of that time couldn't, could only dream of because they were like out in the bush and had to rely on each other. But like all good stories, this one has an ending because with modernization, like the building of railroads, you see the end of cowboys and the end of cattle drives because now you can just push your cattle on a train, right? You don't need to hire someone to take it to another state. You can just pay for your cattle to get on a train and end up in another state. And so when railroads became the big deal for transportation out west and then bob wire was even created and then unfortunately with indigenous groups being pushed onto reservations, that meant less need for cowboys on the ranch. This time was pretty tough, especially for black cowboys. You know, opportunities were far and few between, like there was nada, okay? And many black cowboys couldn't easily buy land of their own because, you know, racism. Even though the days of being a working cowboy slowly faded away, many people were still fascinated by the black cowboy or by the cowboy way of life in general, right? Which led to the popularity of the Wild West shows and rodeos where cowboys, including black cowboys, showcased their skills and entertained folks from all around. In fact, there was a black rodeo that was going around this summer. I'm going to find the name of it and put it in the show notes. And I couldn't go because it was sold out, which is good, right? It's good that it's sold out, but it was like on tour. And I think the last stop was Washington, D.C. And even D.C. was sold out. But yes, there's like black rodeos. Y'all should definitely check it out um, if you're interested. Black cowboys might not always get the recognition they deserve in popular stories of the West or in our textbooks, but the works of historians like today's guests, Zarin Burnett, and others keep their memories and their undeniable contributions alive. So that is the brief overview of the history of cowboys. Now, I wanted to give you a quick list of some cowboys and cowgirls that you should know before we jump into the interview with Zarin. I'm going to give you some names and just like one or two sentences about them because Zarin in his interview really goes into depth on like the different cowboys we should know. Um, But some names you should think about that he's going to mention is Nat Love, who was an American cowboy who was born a slave on a Tennessee plantation. He was known as Deadwood Dick. And I believe one of the characters in Netflix, Hard There Fall, was based on Nat Fall. He has, Nat Love, sorry. He has an autobiography that he actually wrote in 1907, The Life and Adventures of Nat Love. So he was a really big deal. And he's known as one of the most famous cowboys because of his captivating tales and his book. Another black cowboy you should know is Bass Reeves, who was American law enforcement official for 32 years. He was actually the first historically noted black deputy in the U.S. Marshal. And he was also born a slave. He became one of the most respected lawmen in the Indian Territory. I believe that probably means indigenous territory. Rees was a legend for the number of criminals he captured, killing 14 outlaws and arresting 3,000, including 
his own son throughout his career as an officer. Not your own son, Bass. Okay. And then um, a cowgirl I want you to know that Zarin will go into depth with is Mary Fields, aka Stagecoach Mary, who was a badass. She was the first African-American woman and the second woman in the U.S. to carry mail. And she was known to be a badass. I know I said that already, but she was a hard drinking, quick shooting baddie. Um, She was also born into slavery and freed after the Civil War, which is when she started working in Ohio and started working for the postal office carrying mail. And her job was to protect mail on her route from thieves and bandits. And she did that all on a horse. And another cow woman you should know is Heretta Williams Foster, Auntie Reedy. She was born in Mississippi. The year is unknown. She had five sisters, all unfortunately sold into slavery. Um, And... Eventually, after she was like on a plantation, she began working cattle and built a reputation of being as tough as a man. And that is a quote. And she would ride her horse in long skirts and could handle cattle, throw calves and performed all the same work as men. She is a legend of South Texas ranch life. Now, let's get into this interview with Zarin. Hi, Zarin. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about Black Cowboys because that definitely wasn't in our textbook. I always just start off with letting the guests kind of like introduce yourself. I found you because I was like doing a lot of searching for Black Cowboys and Mm -hmm. your podcast, Black Cowboys, popped up in my search and I've been listening to it for the past two weeks. I really love it. And the production is like... A1. If you're listening, oh, you should definitely check it out. I love the storytelling. I love that your dad is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I know currently you have a new podcast called Ridiculous Crime, but I wanted to let you introduce yourself and tell people, you know, who you are and all the different things that you have going on that led up to this point. My name is Aaron Burnett, and I am an American writer. I have been a screenwriter at times. I've been a journalist at times. These days, you'll find me in podcasts. i Primarily, as you notice, the the overarching theme is that I love telling stories to people, ones that shock, amaze, educate, inform, ones that uh, allow them to feel richer connections to the world and to themselves. So these are the stories that I want to tell. And Black Cowboys fit right into that. iHeart came to me and said, would you like to do a podcast? And we've, you know, we've seen your writing. Would you, and what would you want to do it on? And Black Cowboys was a thing. And I said that to them and they're like, oh, yeah, we love that. So then I asked about, I wanted to bring my father in because he was the one who initially told me bedtime stories of black cowboys and enlivened my own imagination. So that way I would have a sense of American history beyond slavery, beyond like all the depredations and tragedies that have occurred to black people in America and, and could have a point of pride and a point of, of a sense of excellence and a sense of like, you know, just the ability to wander across this continent and think of it as mine. Right. And that was a great gift from a father to a son. So I kind of wanted to do the same for the audience. And I thought if I brought my father in together, us us having a conversation about that process, everyone could benefit. And I was very heartened to find that people really did connect and they loved my father's presence in the show just as much as I did. So it was a phenomenal get, if you will. 
Yes. Um, like I said, I've just been listening to it and I really enjoy it. I love the dynamic between you and your father and how you also like narrate and read or he reads parts mm-hmm. of the different cowboys like stories. So each yes. episode, I'm going to just kind of break it down for people who are not listening. Each Please. episode is dedicated to a different black cowboy telling his story and weaved in there is like narration and music. It's like a full production um, of a storytelling and Darren's father's in it and he he might read a snippet and then they also might talk about the different things um, happening in the episode and mm-hmm. what they would have done. And it's like really good. What I really liked about what you said just now and just mm-hmm. like what I read about the podcast is similar to kind of like what your father was doing with you as like telling you about black cowboys. So, you know, that America is yours, right. Mm -hmm. Um, As a black person, but also like to tell you a narrative, a true narrative. That's not, um, you know, around like slavery. Yeah. Yeah. That's not readily known, but also that's not like um, embedded in slavery, something outside Mm -hmm. of like slavery Mm -hmm. and genocide, which is the whole point of this podcast as well. Um, I try my best. Of course, sometimes you can't avoid it. Like even with this subject, we're going to have to talk about it a little bit like I try my best to do history outside of like slavery and genocide of other groups as well because I try to do like Chinese history just like Mm -hmm. other non-white history as well and I feel like in our textbooks that history of like slavery even though they're trying to get rid of it in some states right um and different genocides that have happened to different groups are Mm -hmm. are always prevalent in textbooks for the most part they might not go that deep into it but it's there and um i'm like i really wanted to create this podcast this space to give people pride and uplift them with Mm -hmm. showing them other parts of history and talking about present day history as well, because history is not just in the past, but the things that we do. So that's why I was so excited to talk to you because I felt like we were very aligned in that way. And even just the way I was raised, like, um, you know, I was raised in Harlem and Mm -hmm. I went to like a black Montessori school and Mm. I went to a black middle school started by two brothers who wanted to like uplift kids in their neighborhood and not make them have to to go outside of their neighborhood to go to better schools, right? Mm -hmm. So um, they, yeah, so my foundation is very much similar to kind of what your father did with you in terms of like telling you these stories. And I was like going to these schools that was like, we're dedicated to teaching you about yourself in so many different facets um, and like using that to help you feel like good and understand who you are and understand your ancestors and your history. So I love that. So I always like to start with definitions and stuff like that. So how would you define a black cowboy or a cowboy if you think uh, they're different or similar? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. How are black cowboys different than cowboys? The It comes down to the terminology. Uh, there are a lot of different terms for the people we think of as cowboys. In the West, like west of the Mississippi, they are often called buckaroos, which was an anglicization of the Spanish for vaquero. So you have somebody who was a literally a cow man out in the West, and that becomes buckaroo. In the East Coast, you have uh, two different traditions, one in Texas and one in South Carolina. And they basically merge, if you will, in the Southern imagination, where you have black cowboys in South Carolina and you have black cowboys in Texas. And Texas is where we get the term cowboy, although the first actual usage in, in text comes from South Carolina. It's in a newspaper and they say cowboy referring to black 
cow handlers, if you will. They'd be what in the West Coast in Texas, they would call ranch hands. So if you were a white person dealing with cows in Texas, you were called a ranch hand or a cow hand or just a hand. And if you were a black person and you were dealing or black specifically, specifically a black man and you were dealing with the, the cattle, you were called a cowboy because all black men in Texas were referred to as boys. So they would say, oh, boy, go get this. Boy, do that. So you were the cowboy, right? And then there would be somebody else who was another type of boy. That language, the cowboy, solidified and it became such a known tradition that that's what people in Texas referred to somebody who was handling cattle. So everybody became known as cowboys and it extended past the racial uh, implications. So that way ranch hands were soon known as cowboys. And then that lasted for a long time. But what we think of as cowboys doesn't really come along until basically the 20th century when you start making movies and TV shows and then they start depicting it. And then that's where the language is really codified in a way that Americans think of all of them as cowboys. Whereas if you were going to have accurate stories, you would have heard, you know, and you did in the in the third in movies in the 1930s, they would have buckaroos. You know, like uh, Herb Jeffries, a black cowboy, was known as the bronze buckaroo. So you have this tradition already there. But by the 40s, in the war years in America, wins World War II, all of a sudden now we have to give ourselves this mythos, this idea of who we are and who we've been. And we don't have knights. We don't have an ancient tradition to draw upon to talk about who our warriors are. So we identified with the cowboy. Then you have the Western come along. And there's a lot of Westerns, obviously, in the 40s and 50s. But with the advent of television at the end of the 40s, all of a sudden, all these Westerns start being shown as reruns on TV. And people get to know the West through reruns of Westerns on TV. And that solidifies the imagination, and that's where we get the idea of cowboy. And if you notice, in those westerns, there were no black people for the most part. So there were no black cowboys in the popular imagination, even though the cowboy began with black people on horseback. Wow. I love that you um, talked about how like that connection of like we didn't have any knights and stuff like that. So then mm -hmm. we created this like for America, like a lot of the with the colonization and stuff. It's like we mm -hmm. had like the founding the fathers. The founding yeah, fathers. Yeah, yeah. In quotes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, had to make up all this stuff. Right. To mm -hmm. kind of create history and legacy. And so like cowboys was that. And I, I know you talked about the creation of like Hollywood and TV and how that mm -hmm. really expanded that. And I feel like, you know, stereotypically, we don't see a lot of, we didn't see any black cowboys on TV. Mm -hmm. And one of the stats that like you talk about, and I kept seeing in all my research is like one in four yes. cowboys are black, right? That's a mm -hmm. high number. And I also read that like, some people believe that number is not even accurate because, you know, during slavery, they feel like some people, some enslavers were like hiding some people for mm -hmm. taxi mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people also speculate that number is probably higher. Yeah. One but, in three, some people say. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So so um, with that, right, the stereotypical image of cowboys in our mind shaped by Hollywood and pop culture, how do like the stories of black cowboys challenge and expand on that image? Because I think one of the things I also read was like some of the white cowboys that we saw on TV were kind of based on the stories of some of the black cowboys, but they were played by white people. Yeah, yeah. I believe the the Lone Ranger is essentially a, a bastardization of the legend of Bass Reeves. So you have a black man who becomes the first U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi who is black. He is a venerated lawman, one of the greatest lawmen in American history, and he becomes this legend of the West. Everybody knows him. He is like known for like not. I mean, 
in the course of doing justice in back then, you were going to kill people. So one of the stats that was uh, ascribed to him is, oh, he killed 14 men. So it means he was in 14 gunfights and not he didn't catch a bullet. He didn't die. So he was That's considered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was like a really effective lawman for a very violent place. And that legend cannot be told at the time that they started to tell the Lone Ranger. They can't tell that legend as this black man. Because what we do know is that the, the legend of Bass Reeves the reason why it's tied to the Lone Ranger is that the people that he arrested were sent to federal prison, and then eventually that federal prison they were moved to was in Detroit. And in Detroit, those aging bad men and, and the, these like you know rangers and cowboys and people who basically run afoul of the law, they are all sitting there in Detroit. Well, there was a young reporter guy who's interviewing them, talking to them, and they end up using some of these stories to enliven these new radio show that they have on a Detroit radio show called The Lone Ranger. So The Lone Ranger is inspired by these stories of Bass Reeves, quite literally. But then when they go to make him, they make him this white Texas ranger who is the last to survive a massacre and so forth and become the Lone Ranger to get justice. So they, once again, they change the story to fit the narrative that America would rather tell itself about this, these heroes of American values and so forth. The Lone Ranger very much embody, embodies, much like Superman, this greater than life idea of America, right? But if you get down to it, it's the same story as the Pilgrims, where you have a story they would rather tell rather than than the actual history, which is Jamestown predates the Pilgrims. So we're going to talk about, oh, the founding of America starts with a corporation trying to seek profits in a new land. It's basically, it's an exploitative colonizing story. Well, that's not as, as attractive to, to sell, to say, oh, this is the start of America. We were the, the beginnings of America was a corporation just trying to carve value out of the, the wilderness. We're like, oh, that's not as much fun as these people were being, uh, you know, exploited in, and they were not allowed to be who they wanted. So for religious freedom, they braved the Atlantic and came to here and they founded, you know, at Plymouth Rock, this new, that's not the truth, but that's the story that we tell children. It's the story people believe of America. America starts with, with Spanish conquistadors. America starts with Ponce de Leon and Hernan Cortez and these Spanish conquistadors coming over here and just terrorizing the local populace. And with them, we also know that long before Jamestown, a hundred years before Jamestown and English speaking people get here, there was a free black man named Handsome Juan Garrido walking around in Florida. He was the first black man to set foot in America, and he was free. He was not an enslaved person. He was a free black man, an adventurer out trying to get his piece of, you know, gold and fortune as well. These are the stories that are far more fascinating than these, like, you know, comic book versions of reality that we want to tell children that are these safe stories. And the American cowboy has been, has gone through that same process where we have taken something that is, has real value and real Americanness, for lack of a better word, and have turned it into this like, you know, holiday greeting card version of our history. And I think that that's a shame and it does us a disservice. But then also it tells us that we are somebody who we are not. And it's important that we actually know who we are, because imagine if you didn't have your own memories and you had to move through the world, you wouldn't know who you were. You would not behave as who you are. You would not connect to your deeper selves. You would not be true to your your life journey. Right. Well, our as citizens and as a country, we also have a life journey. We need to know our memories. We need to know who we are and who we've been and where we've come from. And therefore, we can be actually, honestly, and meaningfully ourselves as a nation, as citizens, and so forth. And that's is our divisions often come about because of the fact that we do not know who we have been. Yeah, that was 
you that was a really succinct thought because like you said i think we do romanticize our history mm-hmm. which is kind of like what we're doing now right with mm-hmm. some of the legislation that they're doing in Completely. places like texas that we're talking about right in the south where they're trying to eliminate talking about racism and eliminate mm-hmm. talking about these things which changes the history which takes away our memories as you talked about and doesn't stay true to who we are because we want to have these like hallmark fake renditions of where we come from and so then it's hard to know who you are and how to move forward when you keep rewriting history and making it false and overlooking important things that happen to people who are still very much a part of this country so Mm -hmm. i totally agree and i love that you mentioned bass um one of the people that are in one of your episodes Mm -hmm. are there like a couple of maybe if you if you're inclined because i love the way you like tell stories and everything who are some other black cowboys or cowgirls um Mm -hmm. that you think we should know Oh, man. I mean, there's so many. I mean, uh, I have some favorites. Obviously, many of them are are covered in the story, such as like uh, Cherokee Bill. He was uh, half black, half native outlaw. His father was a Buffalo soldier who was involved in like racist violence down in Texas. And then that that sent him on his own path of violence. So he became somebody who was uh, an outlaw who was known by the Supreme Court. The president was considering uh, giving him a pardon. He was a beloved folk hero. We don't we don't ever hear about him. We always just hear about Billy the Kid or like Jesse James. But this guy was a beloved folk hero that the president was considering pardoning from death row. That's to be a story we know. The uh, I also uh, love John Caballo or John Horse. He was a Seminole and black chief. He would, lived with natives. His people were originally, uh, he had a a black father, a native mother. They basically fall in love. They have a a life down in Florida because the Seminoles were a tribe that were related to the Creek Indians, which is primarily Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee tribe that moved down into Florida when the Spanish said, hey, if you come down here, we'll allow you freedom. So the black people who were living with the Seminoles, because the Seminoles had been very generous in terms of accepting runaway slaves, so they had created a kind of a blended society. They moved down into Florida and become this free population. And he then was living with them. But but America moves across the borders. Spain gives up Florida and then Florida becomes an American possession. And this group, he then leads an exodus. And then they they are promised land out in the the area that would become Oklahoma, which is promised to the five civilized tribes. His tribe is one of the quote, five civilized tribes. So they're promises land. And that's where we get the legend of the Trail of Tears. This is the, the Tasagi, the Cherokee story of this exodus. Well, the Seminoles, they took their, each, each tribe went in different times and different routes. Well, he leads this exodus. And this guy, he leads his people to Oklahoma. He, then when they are battling against racism in Oklahoma, he then fights his way down through Texas into Mexico and guarantees his people freedom like he's Moses of America. And then Mexico's like, okay, you're good. When the Civil War ends and slavery is is decided, he then brings his people back across the border and they become, they return to America because they're like, okay, now you guys got your heads right. We can come back here. So I love that there are these characters who are not only defiant, but great leaders, almost to the sense of like, as I said, with the Moses comparison, biblical levels of like, I'm going to lead my people on an exodus. And there's so many of these stories that are beautiful, powerful, tragic stories of just human excellence. And 
you know, these are, I'm just scratching the surface. There's stagecoach mm -hmm. Mary, who is a, a black cowgirl, for lack of a better word. And she was an absolute boss. I mean, she mm -hmm. was known for being able to like knock men out. She had a standing bet that she could knock any man out and she never lost that bet. The, there was obviously rules of racism that, that uh, prescribed her life. She was not allowed to live to her full flourish, but she then had special dispensations made for her. Like the mayor insisted that she could drink in an all white bar because they decided, well, Mary, these rules that we have shouldn't apply to her. So obviously we don't, you know, we shouldn't applaud people for like, allowing an exception, but she should be credited for being exceptional. And that's the mm -hmm. point is there are a lot of these people and I could be going on. I mean, Nat Love is another one. I've got stories for days. The podcast covers a bunch of them. But these stories, I mean, you don't often hear of like uh, with John Caballo, he manages basically an escape from a, a Spanish fortress. I mean, you can make movies of these things. I mean, he's combining, they're, they're inter intersecting with American history, like President Andrew Jackson. You have like John Caballo actually constantly dealt with presidents trying to see if he could get his people freedom. These aren't people who are like sitting around small campfires hoping that the army doesn't run them over. They're going to Washington and meeting with the president and trying to get independence for their people. We don't hear these stories. We need to know that what people have gone through to have their dignity, their freedom, and their sense of self in this country, because those things can, I think, give all of us a greater sense of what it means to be American, not just Black people who are going to get a sense of pride, but to understand the value of being an American for a lot of people in millions of different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think what you talked about of how they were interacting with presidents and like trying to, you know, help their people become free. You know what I'm saying? Because I think when I think about the stereotypical cowboy, you know, they're just trying to like run away from the marshals and they're just sure, trying exactly. to like, you know, do revenge. And like, that's mm -hmm. the typical, I think for me, like image of a black cowboy. But listening to your podcast and listening to what you're even saying right now, you realize like, a, a black cowboy had a different type of mission, you know, and a lot yes. of them, as you said, right, had this like almost biblical, like they were trying to do more than just like kill people. Like, you know, like everything mm -hmm. was had a mission and a purpose and they were leading people and trying to like create freedom and trying to protect their families and their tribes and also trying to negotiate with presidents. And so I feel like, you know, the Black cowboy really challenges the stereotypical image of yes. cowboys, like in our minds. And, you know, unfortunately, because this is not talked about and definitely not in our textbooks, I don't think a lot of black folks who need to know this know mm -hmm. that and would be so like empowered and inspired by that. So I like really appreciate you doing that. And like that was one of the things that I learned listening to your podcast is like, oh. wow, like there's a lot of these like hero, almost Superman like mm -hmm. heroes out there that were black cowboys, like saving, trying to save the world, kind of trying to save their people yeah, and like, exactly. you know, coming together with, um, you know, indigenous folks and trying to get land and trying to protect themselves from like colonization and slavery and racism. And so one of my questions, which I probably should have asked in the beginning, I usually do a history segment, you know, in the beginning that gives a little background. But could you talk about the formation of the Black Cowboy? Because I know in my research, it talked a lot about, um, you know, the cowboy. When you talked about the definition, you kind of mentioned this, but like the Black Cowboy was really kind of created, you know, during the time of like enslavement. And so like 
enslavers would have their I guess their cattle, quote unquote, right? Like the black people that they enslaved be um, in charge of, you know, rounding up cattle and Mm -hmm. taking care of the land, especially before the creation of like fences and barbed wire to like keep animals together and to keep all your things together. But could you also kind of explain a little bit the formation of the black cowboy, like how that came to be historically? Sure. Now, you bring up a very good point, which is basically before the picket wire, before barbed wire, before America was crisscrossed by wire, there was large herds of cattle wandering across the country and men were in charge of keeping them together and then also gathering up the strays. And this is really the primary job of the cowboy on the on the trail which they they, you know, they raise the cattle and then they take the cattle up to market. So that meant going crossing multiple states. That's the Texas tradition. That's what we think of as the cowboy. But that's not the that's not the only way. So there in South Carolina, they didn't have to do large cattle drives. They weren't going to take the meat to Kansas like the way they did in Texas. Instead, they could slaughter the meat there. So the cowboys there were primarily from the from West Africa, from uh, Senegal, Gambia, uh, these areas that had long histories of actually tending cattle. So they had their own ways of using sticks and ropes and different herding techniques. So the South Carolina planters, they, they realized that it wasn't just rice uh, that would be a good crop for them. They could also raise cattle because they had these enslaved people who were really good at keeping cattle. So they were like, oh, wow, they can keep these cattle alive in, in these swamps, this, this place that it really we did not think we could keep cattle. And that's how successful the West African cattle herding traditions were. So then there you get out of the South Carolina tradition that uh, out of the Texas tradition, there was much more of a Spanish interface because the Spanish were the long before the English were the colonizers, the Spanish were. So they brought over enslaved African people once again from West Africa, a lot of the same traditions, but the Spanish also had their own traditions. So you had a combination in Mexico or what would become Mexico that is uh, the enslaved people, the natives who were enslaved by the Spanish, and then you have Africans who were enslaved by the Spanish. So you have two different groups working together and the Spaniards found that the Africans were really good at maintaining the cattle. So they primarily had them using these West African techniques. But then they also came up with rules like, oh, you can't use this one spear to maintain cattle because they thought, oh, if we give them these spears, it'll be like a weapon and they can Mm. do a slave revolt. So they said, you can't have this thing that we use to uh, make the cattle do what we want. So instead, you can only use lariats. So the tradition of the lasso and the rope, that comes about because of a Spanish racist decision that they can't use this old spear. So then... The enslaved people get really good at using lariats and ropes, and they use these African traditions, and then they create the horned saddle, which is based on an African saddle, which is you have this metal protrusion between your legs that lifts up, and you can wrap a rope around that, and that means you can use the horse's might to pull a cattle out of like where they're stuck in an arroyo or down in a little dusty ditch, right? These are these traditions become the cowboy traditions of how you herd cattle, how you get them back together, how you get them to market. So. These African cowboys working under racist Spanish conditions invent most of the traditions that we think of as the Western cowboy. They invent the saddle that we think of. They invent the lariat and the lassos that we think of. They invent most of the herding techniques. So when you think of the actual like, oh, trail riding cowboys, not the South Carolina, we know how to raise and tend cattle, but we're going to move cattle like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. That becomes the Texas tradition. And that is primarily because of those early vaqueros, those black West African enslaved people who 
due to their enslavers, they had to learn a new tradition. And, and in doing so, they birth a tradition that we think of as American. And it starts down in Mexico. So okay. if, you, if you want to think of American cowboys, you cannot think about them without black people and Mexico. Yeah. And that's like, that's definitely what I was reading about how you can't like, you know, Mexico and black people and Mexico that was now Texas, you know, they say a lot of mm-hmm. things in Texas, but like you have to know back then it was still Mexico. Yes. So, um, you Texas, know, a lot of Texas things. has seceded from two countries. They seceded from Mexico and then they seceded from America. Texas is mm. full of themselves. Yeah. And they should be, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, they, they deserve it. They're a huge place with a great history, but you know, at the mm-hmm. same time, Texas has always been it's kind of like a country inside of a country. It, it is yes. a republic unto itself, and it has always been that way. No matter what country you put it in, Mexico or America, Texas still thinks of itself as Texas. Yes. So I loved how you kind of walked us through kind of like the formation and how indigenous folks and, you know, West African traditions all came together to create this concept mm-hmm. of the cowboy that we never talk about. Right. <laughs> we yes. never, No one ever mentions, um, especially with the, the lasso. We see that. Right. That's like one of the images of the cowboy. Mm-hmm. When I look up cowboy, it's like a horse and someone with a rope. Right. And yeah, like to know exactly. that that is something that came from laws that didn't allow enslaved folks to have certain items because they would be Mm -hmm. used as a weapon is, you know, speaks to the ingenious of, you know, our ancestors, right? And the creativity. A hundred percent. And so I, you know, thank you for walking us through that history. So what are some, you know, I think a lot of the stories of black cowboys also intersect with like historical events or societal movements, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe the civil rights movement or the frontier. Mm -hmm. Can you like talk to those? Like how do those stories intersect with some of the things that have happened in history that we may know about, but don't have like the black cowboy inserted in that? Okay. Um, for instance, the long history of bloody Kansas, you have this state, yeah, the Kansas, Nebraska, we were going to be like, oh, slave state, free state. We're still trying to decide at the time how you bring in states. Well, Kansas was a place that for black people was originally presented kind of as a, as a heaven on earth. It was going to be a majority black state. And there was something called the Kansas Exoduster Movement, where all these people were trying to make an exodus and make it to Kansas. And it's surprising to us. We don't think of like Kansas. I mean, most people don't think of Kansas and black people. We often we don't think of the Midwest, really. which is a, a huge, <laughs> it's, it's a huge mistake because there's a lot of black people in like St. Louis and, and Memphis and Chicago, all throughout the Midwest, especially along the, the Mississippi River. But we don't think of it this way. Well, back then, it very much was an intentional like, uh, and a lot of people in the South thought, oh, this will be great. We'll have black people go out there. They won't be a problem for us. So they, they there was a lot of support uh, by the white public and the black public in the cultural imagination that black people going to Kansas will be this great thing. Well, black people start trying to go out there. And then the people who are in Kansas, white people there who are also trying to get their piece of the American future, they're like, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. So then we see this exact same thing that we would later see in Oklahoma, which is this tradition of we're going to let everybody in America have like, you know, the the boomer sooner land rushes of Oklahoma, they basically just turned open the state and said, OK, we bought this back from the natives. The indigenous people gave us this land on a really bad deal. But now you guys can all go in there and grab your piece of land. Well, when that was set up, white people made sure that black people could not have positions to do this. And so we see this over and over again when there is an offer of like, hey, you can go and, and uh, get your piece of America. Black people will, will attempt to do this. And then even if they do manage to get, say, a homestead, so a lot of black farmers and a lot of black cowboys did get to set up in Kansas, but they could not make it 10 years without having forces that would align to push them out of the state. And we see this over and over again in California. You see that there would be 
black ranchers or black gold miners who would be uh, hopefully, you know, some feeling somewhat protected by armed black cowboys who they had brought with them. And still, you would have lynch parties. You would have issues where there was this constant fights. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the, the gold rush. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the foundation of Chicago. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the history of the New Orleans slave trade. You will always find that black people were intersecting both with a sense of independence and freedom because there'd be somebody going, okay, we can get you out of this. And then other people would come along and usually with the benefit of the law and would say, no, this can't be because we want to exploit you. We needed to take your labor from you. We need to deny your humanity for us to be able to work as a country. And so they come up with these legal arguments and the black cowboy emerges as this defiant figure who could not be corralled. It was one of the few people who was a, a way for a black person to make a living that they could not figure out a way to say, okay, we're going to put a stamp on you. We're going to put a, a lock on you. We're going to deny you your, your freedom of access to the whole country. The black cowboy could wander from, you know, the, the, the Canadian border to the Mexican border from the, you know, anywhere they wanted. They, they felt that this was their country and they knew their value because their, their fellow cowboys out on the, on the trail, they would have to depend on each other. They were all man to man to man. These people were, they were equivalents and equals on the trail. Now if they get back to Texas and they go to into a bar they know that not everyone can go into that bar. But on the trail, they were all men and all equals and all friends. So that was a very rare uh, example of what we would want to see of the, the sense of uh, humanity and, and American equality that we talk about. It was lived and actually experienced on the trail by black cowboys, no matter who they rode with. Yeah, yeah. I love that you said that because that's also kind of like, you know, after the emancipation and then like you have this population of former enslaved people who have mm -hmm. the skill of, you know, herding cattle or oh, yeah. moving things. And so like there's this big population of black cowboys that, you know, were once enslaved and now they're mm -hmm. free. And so they have, like you said, this independence, but they're still like, you know, it's like reconstruction. They're still like Jim Crow and all these oh, laws yeah. that mm -hmm. inhibit their ability to have that independence and have that full freedom, you know, even and, yeah, on the totally. road. Mm -hmm. And there would be yeah. fights. Like if you were, say, to a, a Texas rancher, there were uh, black ranchers in Texas who would do really well. Some of the biggest ranches in Texas were black owned. And oftentimes uh, forces would conspire against them when they did well. So people would come in to try to seize their land or to seize their cattle. So even success could invite more tragedy. So it was always the problem of like, you know, you want to do well, but if you do too well, you know, you're going to become a target. So the black cowboy was a, a one way for someone to figure out a, a sense of freedom because if they were to become a black rancher, they could lose everything. But people were very unlikely to take everything from the black cowboy. So unfortunately it was both uh, a, like, a zenith horizon where you knew like, oh, I'm free in this way. But you also knew that you can't get to the mountaintop. So you can see the horizon, but you can't get to the mountaintop. So it, it was it was a, a limited freedom because that's an America had been a long history for us. But it still was a true and honest and lived freedom. So it has great value in that sense. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I agree. I could see it's kind of like the duality, right, of mm -hmm. like being a black person and like, yeah, I think like, you know, people have written about this, but just kind of like having this newfound freedom, but not really, you know what I yes. mean? Like, okay, now you're not like forced to be on a plantation, but now, now, now there's laws and now mm -hmm. there's all these mm -hmm. other new things and the formation of the KKK and all of that and lynch oh, yes. parties to instill fear and like even your success makes you a target, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything just makes you a target from your skin color to your success to yeah. everything else which is really unfortunate yes well yes it is the sad uh, and ugly reality of when you try to tell a person that they are good because they are not another person 
mm-hmm. this is what occurs. So the history of racism is is you know tied to an idea of an emotional support system for people, and when you have that you are going to be tied into all sorts of weird, ugly places you don't expect. Like racism isn't just in the law. It isn't just in the, the, the ugly taunts. It's in the idea that somebody needs someone else to be beneath them. And that's where racism really takes hold. Yeah. I, yeah, that is, that is it, right? Like someone mm-hmm. has, you're less, someone is lesser than. Yeah, and that's how it keeps. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The only way that they can be something is that they're standing on someone. You know, like that. that is just a, a shame. And that speaks to an emotional, like, you know, maturity that, we as a culture, whatever, we'll all have to, to wrestle with, which is why do we need someone else's value to give us value? Why can't we be able to find our value in and of ourselves and our ability to be ourselves, our best selves and, and to challenge ourselves? All the things that even you know, coaches talk about this is like, you know, you're competing against yourself. It'd be great if Americans could start seeing that we're competing against ourselves and not against some imagined other. Yes. Yes. Self-competition, right? Not comparing, not looking at other people, just on your own path, on your mm-hmm. own road. So um, I have like two more questions for you. One is the signature question of the show, but I'll wait. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> I always like to do that. So, um, I, you know, one thing that came out recently about the Black Cowboy is mm-hmm. The Harder They Fall by like oh, Netflix, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And so that was very exciting. I think a lot of Black people were very excited for that. Yes. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now that I've listened to your podcast and done my own research, I realized that a lot of those figures in the movies were based on real people that we uh-huh. that you've talked about. Yes. Um, I think Nat Love is supposed to be mm-hmm. one of the people. So could you talk about how you felt like with that movie coming out? I would love to know like your insight, your feelings around it. Maybe if you had a conversation with your dad and then maybe um, we could ha- talk about some of those characters and who they're who they are based off in real life. Cause I don't think a lot of people made that connection or at least I didn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so almost every single character in uh, the heart of the fall is based on a real life black Western figure. So you have like Rufus Buck was a, 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 a outlaw who was, who was known to lead like this, be frank, a horrible set of, of crimes in the Midwest. They were going out doing like you know, murders and rapes and stuff. And so the, the, but it was a, it galvanized the people's imagination because it was a mixed gang. So you had natives and black people going around with other like white cowboys. So you the outlaws, and so it was, it was, it, it, it captured the imagination, right? It was different than Cherokee Bill, who was much more of a folk hero outlaw. Rufus Buckle was much more of the bad man outlaw. So then that's why it works well that he be the outlaw of that movie. Now Nat Love being the hero of the movie was a little bit of a strange choice for me because the. The, the timing of some of these things like Jim Beckworth is in the film and he was a trapper from like the 1830s and, and what do you call it? Like Nat Love wouldn't be born in, for, uh, until you know, 15 years later. So they, they don't really overlap. So some of the right? time period is yeah, a little like, off. Okay. <laughs> Sagecoach Mary takes place like in the end of the 19th century. She's much big. She, she's a big presence in the 1870s, 1880s. So you have very different uh, people moving through that the 19th century, all being shoved into one time and space, which Whatever, I, you know, I'm not going to, I thought it was an interesting choice. I didn't, wasn't necessarily a huge fan of it because it confused people into thinking that these were all contemporaries and they start to believe this was like, this could have happened. So yeah. I, I kind of <laughs> wish that they would have like taken one or two of them and just focused on that and then filled it out with fictional characters. But you know, what, what, what are you going to do? So mm-hmm. I enjoyed the movie visually. I thought it was stunning. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was great to be able to experience the, the lives of black cowboys. And, you know, we don't expect every Western that is, 
a non-blockwestern to be accurate and historical and tied to I I treated it the same way I would treat a Clint Eastwood western, which is like, okay, is this a good story? Am I enjoying this? And so I don't need this to be a biopic, you know, or you know, yeah. a biopic. So I'm like, cool. And I, I very much enjoyed uh, you know, the film on the, on those grounds. And then some of the performances were were astounding. I mean, like I always enjoy watching the Keith work, you know. So it, it was Yes, I love the Keith yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So And he was Cherokee like, Bill, his character? Yes, okay, yes, yes, exactly. Okay. So it, okay. it's like it's just awesome seeing uh that stuff come to life and then with actors that you really love and respect. Uh, at the same time, like I said, I, I just wish it would have been a little more historically accurate, but that's just because as somebody who's trying to teach these stories, I would hope that people would be able to use this as a tool, but mm-hmm. I understand that not everything needs to be a tool. Something can just be a fun balloon. And this is what to me is basically a fun balloon. Yeah. It's like loose historical. Yeah. Inspired by historical events. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and it's and it's fun to watch it do its thing, just like a balloon. Like, I don't need it to be like, okay, this is going to do, like, tell me the weather in the sky. It doesn't need yes. to have a function. So. Yeah. Yeah. So with movies like Harder Fall, I feel like mm-hmm. I hope that there will be more, like, Black yes. Cowboy movies. And maybe they could do, like, a whole movie that focuses on just, you know, Stagecoach Mary or, mm-hmm. you know, any of those people. Just, like a, like, a focus on them. I think that would be great. I feel like it was definitely a good starting point. I feel like it got a lot of good... Um, mm-hmm you know, press and a lot of people enjoyed it. So I hope that like, you know, as people talk more and more about the black cowboy, that we actually could have more images like that. On I'm a hundred. I completely agree with you. And I, I would wish the same. I've been trying to uh, pitch a TV show about black cowboys. And I found from Hollywood that they're like, oh yeah, that's not really, I mean, that was like a couple of years ago. That was the thing, but now we're on to different stuff. So they move <sighs> in trends in Hollywood. So we have to hope yes, the trend realigns you. with what they mm-hmm. want to do because right now they're like, oh, that's, that's so three years ago, but whatever. So the, I would like to see maybe even if, you know, rather than us going to studios, at the, uh, black producers and production companies could invest in our own story so that we could go and, and find these talents. Because it's, it's oftentimes you're going hat in hand and trying to ask people, hey, would you let us tell our stories? And I would, I would much rather that I could go to somebody, you know, like, I, I don't think he has a production company, but like if Jay, say Jay-Z had money, be like, hey, Jay, can we like make this story? I mm-hmm. think he would understand it differently than me having to go to Hollywood and, you know, studio to studio and go, what do you guys think? Because he hears the value differently so i'm hopeful that uh black creatives can start telling our stories and you know knock off some of the dust in history and enliven it with you know the, the blood of life and all the stuff i mean the sex and the danger like everything that we know of it that exists yeah. not just tell some story of like oh here's a cowboy on a horse let's show a cowboy in a bed you know let's show like all the fullness yeah. of our lives mm-hmm. let's show a cowboy at a dance let's show a cowboy at a you know like i want to see all of this uh, and not just the shootouts. And so I think that we would be able to tell a fuller story if we're telling our own story. So I would like, and hopefully, fingers crossed, that the black production companies start wanting to tell these stories. Yeah, I think that would be amazing because, um, you know, you see a lot of nowadays, you see like a lot of independent films or things at Sundance. Mm-hmm. So I could see, totally see you getting like an investor, like a Jay-Z or someone. And because like you said, Hollywood really operates on trends. Yeah. And I feel like more of the independent films are more just like, this is a great story. We want to tell yes. the story. We want to get this out there. So yes. I totally could see that. And I, I like when you were talking, I was like, I would love to see like a black cowboy boy talking to a president like we talked about some of these relationships that they have Mm -hmm. had and how one was about to be pardoned by a president like you know i would love to see those type of things or the conversations they're having with their people Mm -hmm. you know when you were talking about the other um black cowboy who was 
in Florida, like the conversations he's having with yes. his people to like before the speeches that he gives before they go to the Trail of Tears and like yes. come back. Like, you know, like I want to see all of that. And I yeah. think, and look, you know, what about a black cowboy love story? You know, like, what oh, do we see like yes. a couple who are trying to make their love and their home real in this world? I mean, like there's so many ways and there's like, OK, in, in, in Oklahoma, you know that uh, the Seminoles, they have land and the land uh, was the home of a lot of oil wealth. So right now, uh, Scorsese has a new movie coming out that's about exactly this, but it was the the, the, the oil people picking off the Osage, which is one of the, the tribes oh, of yes. the area, right? Mm. So you have this, you have these amazing stories. It's so just Scorsese sees it. Why can't we also tell our stories? You know what I'm saying? Is like there are stories that when you want to talk about the American, oh, power and wealth and all that, fine, we can do that. Throw a black cowboy in there and you can tell a real story. Yeah, I totally agree. I also would love to talk about like, you know, because we're talking about how depicting black cowboys and black cowgirls today mm -hmm. in TV is needed and necessary, yes. and I think would be great. Yes. Um, I also think, you know, I think during the pandemic, right, the 2020, 2021, mm -hmm. there was like a racial awakening, I can't even speak, racial mm -hmm. awakening, right, where people were talking out in the street protesting. Yes. Um, it was the death George of Floyd, yeah. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, by police. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so then we also saw this emergence of just like black history everywhere. Everyone was talking about different black history things. Mm -hmm. And one thing that came up was the black cowboy. I mean, there was like a whole thing that was about like the Compton black cowboys uh -huh. out here. And I know there's mm -hmm. a lot of other black cowboy groups. Can you speak to kind of like the current state of the black cowboy and maybe like the different groups that are out here right sure. now? Like, what do you think? Cause I know now like cowboys are not really, you know, with the invention of the railroad. Right. Mm -hmm. And like Bob wire yeah. cowboys kind of have declined. And I know like historically they went into other fields and stuff mm -hmm. like that, but like, what is the current state of cowboys and where do you see it going? Well, you have like, a, you know, various traditions all uh, braiding together, then also uh, pulling apart through the mm -hmm. 20th century. So some of the cowboys, as you point out, they they lose like, like Nat Love. He quits cowboying because of the railroad and he gets a job working as a Pullman porter, which a lot of black men became Pullman porters. So a lot of black cowboys became Pullman porters. And so they then ended up leading uh, one of the country's largest uh, labor strikes. So the Pullman mm -hmm. porter strike was a major turning point in American labor. So the black cowboy once again intersects with the American history, this time with the labor movement. But uh, going into the 20th century, a lot of people who had skills tending animals or dealing with horses, they uh, would, when they moved to cities, because oftentimes there was a lot of uh, the great migration north, a lot of black people moved into cities, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Newark. New York, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So when we get up there, we bring with us these, these skills. So black people who could uh, deal with horses, they often worked at a dairy. So they would then take, because prior to about the 50s, most dairies, uh, when they were delivering their milk each morning, they took it around on a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon, just like mm. any cowboy wagon train. So you needed people who knew how to deal with horses, who knew how to shoe horses. And then also they have different difficulties because now they're taking these horses on streets, which is not where the horse wants to go. So there's a lot more tending to the animal. Mm -hmm. So the dairies that were really successful found that the older black cowboys were phenomenal at this and then they could teach younger people how, their skills and so you would see throughout the 30s 40s into the 50s a lot of black cowboys working in a dairy in philadelphia or working in a dairy in cleveland right delivering milk to people in the morning so my father and uh people who can remember like you know being very small in the 50s have memories of black cowboys on like you know bringing the milk to their house wow. and he was he was in new jersey so 
the traditions spread across the country and with those traditions become become the, the culture and the stories and the and the life lessons that you get so then the the cowboy traditions were receded and found a new home and purchase in the east coast and so all of a sudden now you have this is why it wasn't such a leap for someone like my father to be watching westerns on tv and then to look out and to see the guy delivering his milk and make that connection so for mm -hmm. him the black cowboy was not such a, a terribly hard thing to imagine because he could see one outside of his window each morning delivering the milk these are the types of traditions that we often don't know about but you'll see that stayed alive in places like uh the, in, in uh, concrete cowboys you have the story of Cowboys in a, in an urban setting, right? In Philadelphia, and you have the ones in New York. You have uh, out here we have the Oakland ones in in Compton. You have the Compton Cowboys. There's all sorts of ones throughout Texas, Oklahoma, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida. Uh, you will find these, which are traditional associations of black cowboys who want to keep the life of the black cowboy alive. So then they bring in young people. They teach them how to ride, how to rope, how to handle themselves as a cowboy. I went out to the Bill Pickett Rodeo recently here in Oakland. It's a traveling rodeo. And uh, it is an amazing thing because you can see and talk to black cowboys. And then they go out there and they try to talk to these kids and the kids just light up. And then they want to go be cowboys. I was the one here in Oakland and I met somebody who Bill Pickett Rodeo came around. They decided they want to rope and ride. And now two years later, this little kid is becoming a black cowboy. He was wow. sitting there. He had his hat on. He had his belt buckle. He was it's watching amazing. the rodeo. So this kid <laughs> in Oakland is now going to become a cowboy as much as his dad was right out there. He was like, yeah, we've been getting into it. We go out there. We ride each weekend. So when they see their traditions and then they start to actually do them, it's almost like, you know, like the ancestors connecting through the rope and the, and the saddle and the leather. All of a sudden mm. they're like, oh, this feels good. This feels right. This feels like something that has great meaning. And those traditions, I'm glad they made it through the 20th century. So we still have a connection and that there are still cowboys in Oakland, cowboys in Philadelphia, and that we have this tradition because, you know, it is very difficult to maintain traditions in a society such as ours that always uh, values the new and yes. whatever is on trend. Mm -hmm. And I think like I grew up watching a lot of Westerns, believe it or not, because my grandfather, um, who was originally from Virginia, made his way to New York um, with his family during the Great Migration, like his his dad and stuff like that was like obsessed with Westerns. Like that's all yes. I watched was like black and white movies growing up, mm -hmm. um, watching Westerns and that and Murder, She Wrote, but that was my grandma. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so like I have a, like, you know, Westerns and stuff like that has like a really strong hold on me because my grandfather yes. was pretty much my father figure. So I'm just mm -hmm. like, my grandpa used to watch Westerns and like this, I, I wish I could talk to him when like, he passed away, but I'm like, I wish I could talk to him about this and like wondered if he knew about, these things but like I was too young for him to like get that deep into it with me but yeah. you know just like talking about the creation of like the black cowboy and like the delivery of milk um because you know they had like the ice boxes back mm -hmm. then yeah. and totally. all ice, that stuff. ice wagon same thing yeah. yeah exactly so and I know like how you were saying like the invention of probably like cars changed mm -hmm. that whole delivery system yes. and just like holding on to those traditions because like even in New York you will see some police officers on hot on horseback mostly in Central mm -hmm. Park you know yeah. so right. that's like you know there's like i'm pretty sure horses were ingrained into the police force at some point as well before cars and well they're great for crowd like control yeah. exactly exactly so it was just really interesting to like think about the evolution of that and to know that there are people like in oakland and we got the compton cowboys out here in la like that are holding on to these traditions and passing it down like i really appreciate that and i think that's so important in terms of like keeping history and traditions alive I would hundred percent agree. I mean, it is, I think that so often traditions get treated as something that is a, 
a limiting factor or something that we have to maintain is like it was like oh it's been handed to me and i got now i got this hot potato i got to hand to somebody else where so mm-hmm. often i think that if we can remember that traditions are also what give us a, a connection to the past and a connection to the future then yes. we can remember that we are in a place in history and a place in time and not just the edge of the future Yes, yes, I love that. The tradition gives us a place connected in the past and in the future. That was that's in the mm-hmm. night. That's a quotable right there. <laughs> um, and so the last question, the signature question yes. of the show is, you know, if you had an opportunity to write a chapter in a textbook mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. black cowboys or the history mm-hmm. of black cowboys, what would you call it? Why and what things would you put in there or thing? Maybe you'll focus on one thing, but yeah. Um, I would probably call it as American as the Black Cowboy, like that would be the title. And mm-hmm. I would then write about, I think if I was to limit it to one cowboy, I would probably tell the story of Nat Love because I think he crosses all of the stuff and you can tell a very big story of America because you can get from him being born in uh, enslaved then walking out of slavery barefoot from the deep south to Dodge City, Kansas, going up to a trail boss and saying, I want to become a cowboy, getting challenged about, well, I don't know if you can do all this. And then they go and ask him to go and like basically break a horse. They have this crazy bucking bronco and he goes out there and he gets on that because as when he was an enslaved boy what he did for a living was break horses so these cowboys don't expect this barefoot enslaved ch- child essentially to be good and he's better than any of the cowboys this guy has on his trail he's like oh you got a job and then he goes on to engage with with a lot of native populations sometimes in violence sometimes in love he goes on to become a great cowboy part of all of the traditions that we think of as like you know the good night trail the loving trail all these big Texas cattle trails. Then he gets involved with the railroad and the whole history of stitching America together through the train tracks and then dealing with the land barons and the the, the, the great robber barons at the end of the 19th century. Then he goes in, the, he, he uh, gives himself over to what beat his way of life. His, he realizes that his way of life is becoming obsolete. He becomes a Pullman porter and joins the trains. He then starts going between Denver and Chicago and sees the country that he once rode free become the modern country that we recognize. So he really is an immediate handover between life in the antebellum slavery South to our modern sense of like, oh, I'm just going to pop over across the country and I'm going to connect with all these people. And like the America that we think of as America, he was there for it being made, sewn together and then aging. So he's got to see the America that we now live in become itself in a very true sense. And I think you could tell a very big story and a beautiful tapestry because there's so many people who weave into the story, Billy the Kid. I mean, like these people that, that are known commodities also factor into his tale as well. So you could tell a very interesting story of America just through Nat Love's story. Well, I love that. I love how you can stitch in, how you stitched in everything, like different historical things and the industrialization system. Like I just, it's, it sounds like you have a great chapter. You said America, (laughs) America as the black cowboy. As American as a black cowboy. As American as a black cowboy. I love the name of that chapter. Thank you so much for joining me, Zaren. You gave us so much to think about. You taught Thanks us so much. Me. And I really, really appreciate it. I enjoyed this conversation. and I really appreciate you reaching out. And I uh, appreciate your work and what you do. So thank you. And so that is the conclusion of the summer series season five episode three on the history the hidden history of the black 
cowboy. Now, I loved that conversation with Zarin because he is just not only passionate, but like such a good storyteller and very well informed. I loved how he highlighted that the cowboy was kind of created through Hollywood, right, as a way to create American history because we didn't have knights like like Europe, right? They had like a longer history and they had like medieval times and stuff like that. America is much younger. And so a lot of these histories, um, we kind of made up to have a deeper history. Like I think about the Mayflower and like how that's not real really. And I talked about that on the Thanksgiving episode. You should check that out. But even how this cowboy, this white cowboy is kind of like our American knight, right? And is this hero and a part of the American culture and how we've kind of exaggerated or left out some things to create this history in a way that we don't really have. And so I thought that was very interesting and insightful. My Toya takeaways from this is that black folks and Mexicans were probably the first cowboys of America. And um, another takeaway that I learned is just how black folks were very innovative during that time, especially when cowboys were still enslaved and they could not use whips and they didn't have barbed wire, how they created all these inventions that Zarin even mentioned and techniques with the lasso and stuff like that to make life easier. So that's another takeaway that I learned. We are innovative as fuck and particularly people of color who have, you know, suffered a lot in this country. We have come up with creative ways to do different things. And in the case of the black cowboy, you know, our rope skills and all that technique was very innovative and probably also taught and learned by indigenous groups and Mexicans who were here in America before, you know, the enslaved folks were kidnapped from Africa and brought to America. So that probably was a combination of skills combined. Another takeaway that I learned is learning about Nat Love and Bass Reed and other cowboys and how the black cowboy seemed to have a deeper mission than what Hollywood made up about cowboys in general that and making them white they weren't just these gun bandit killers who were robbing banks like these complete outlaws a lot of them had missions a lot of them were trying to lead people and free their people and trying to negotiate and try to find land and just as a black cowboy a black cowgirl there just seemed to be a heavier mission besides just trying to be free on an individualistic level but actually trying to change things and how some of these cowboys were meeting with the president and enforcing laws like that is amazing and unheard of especially during that time to think of a black deputy like okay so those are my three takeaways I'm sure there are so many more I'm gonna let y'all add to it y'all listen to the episode and I just want to thank you all for listening I appreciate every download every share and if you enjoyed this episode please tell a friend to tell a friend. I just came back from podcast movement. And one of the number one ways that people find out about podcasts is word of mouth. Okay. Is a friend sending a text with the link, you know, that's the number one way. And I'm trying to really grow 
the podcast audience downloads. We roughly get about 500-ish, depending on the topic, per episode. And I need to get to 1,000, y'all, because I want to, because I want to grow this community, and because I would love to start doing sponsorships. And that's kind of like the threshold number is 1,000. So I would love, if you listen to this episode, to tell a friend to tell a friend, or if you have a social media, to share the episode on social media, or if you have a newsletter, whatever way you can, share this episode. I would appreciate it. And I appreciate your listen, even if you don't share. I just appreciate you being here. And we have one more episode left in the summer series, which is going to be on the history of hookah. So make sure you come back next week for that episode. And until next time, remember, knowledge is power.